0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong. And you're listening to Genre Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Jean Retainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Mark
1: and Julie. John Retainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now for this 96th episode, we are speaking with writer Dean Wesley Smith. He is a USA Today best-selling author with over 100 novels published and hundreds of short stories published as well.
0: He shares with us how he started his now over 40-year career. He gives us some excellent writing tips from his experience and from his nonfiction book, Writing Into the Dark. He tells us what it's like writing media tie-in books for movie and TV show settings like Star Trek, Men in Black, Quantum Leap, and and many more. Mm -hmm. He also talks about his original book series like his Old West time travel series, Thunder Mountain, his sci-fi space opera, The Cedars Universe, and his superhero series, Poker Boy. Now, I also wanted to mention that I'm having a lot of fun judging for the third year in the row
1: mm-hmm.
0: for the Geeky Awards.
1: Third time's the charm.
0: Now, if you have a geeky web series, short film, comic book, video game, or tabletop game, then you should really think about entering. Uh, now, if you're listening to this episode soon after it first airs, then you just might have enough time to kind of sneak in there. <laughs> the cutoff date is June 14th, 2015. If you don't get a chance to enter, then I would encourage you to check out the live streaming award show when it airs in October. Uh you can learn more by clicking over to thegeekyawards.com. That's the geeky G-E-E-K-I-E. G-E-E-K-I-E. Awards.com, And we'll have that web address in the show notes also for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, before we get started with the interview, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at RealityOnDemandSeries.com. Well, now let's get started with our interview with author Dean Wesley Smith. We're speaking with Dean Wesley Smith. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: We're uh, happy to have you on. First learned about you reading your book, Writing in the Dark, which is a nonfiction book about writing, basically like what most people would call like pants or writing by a seat, seat of your pants. Basically.
1: I like it. I'm in the dark in pretty much everything. So might as well learn about writing there too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for those people who don't know, you're a USA Today best-selling author. You have over 100 published novels, published hundreds of short stories. I believe you've been writing for uh, around 40 years.
2: Yeah, I published my first short story in, frighteningly enough, 1974. been going at it pretty intensely ever since.
1: <laughs> That's great.
2: I didn't sell the first novel until um, 87, so there were some years of learning in there. Which <laughs> yeah.
0: well, One thing I thought was very interesting reading about your background is you didn't really start out in writing at a young age. A lot of authors are like, yeah, I've been writing since I can remember, kind of deal. Yeah. But you're a little different than that. Uh, can you explain like how you shifted gears in your life towards becoming an author?
2: Yeah, I, I basically hated anything to do with writing, just most <laughs> of it. Um, I would take classes that uh, didn't have essay tests, you know, things like that. I just because I just literally wanted nothing to do with writing um, in any way, shape, or form. And so the fact that some of my older friends, the fact that I turned out to be a fiction writer is. Is just head shaking to them.
3: I basically
2: <laughs> I was expected to be a golf professional. Um, my dad was a golf pro. I grew up in golf and in snow skiing. When I got out of high school, I basically went skiing. I was in the early days of what is now called freestyle skiing. Back then, it was called hot dogging. Yeah. Uh, I did that for a couple of years um, and then moved to golf and became a golf pro- PGA golf professional and was playing trying to make the tour and I, I was a head pro of a country club in Palm Springs, California and just got bored with it. You know, I'd been I'd born and raised in it, got bored with it, went back to college um, to finally decide, well, I better get a degree in something. So I went to be a golf course architect. And so I have a degree, I have a master's degree in architecture of all crazy things. And then I went on to three years of law school. Uh, but somewhere back in the early days of the architecture degree, they forced me to take an English class. <laughs> I thought poetry for non-majors would be a very good class to take and worked out that they made me submit a story to a contest. And I got second place in the contest, which is the only person that had ever been published out of those poetry for non-major classes. <laughs> and that got me started. It was, uh, it was basically a, a, an assignment in a class that got me to mail a poem and I was, they hated me in that class. I got a C in the class because I was far too commercial for their taste. (laughs) Uh, I know how that is, yeah. Far too commercial, and so (laughs) the reality was uh, that's what got it started, and then I just kind of switched over and started working at it, and that was in, I sold my first poems in 73, 74, and then sold a couple short stories, and then it went downhill from there for a while.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, what was the law school? You were thinking for a while you'd be an attorney golf architect?
2: I have no idea.
1: <laughs> that was just bugging uh, me. I had to figure I, it out. I,
2: I, went to, I went to, I had the master's in architecture, and by the time I got done with that, I realized I wasn't going to be a golf course architect.
3: <laughs> uh,
2: and I just thought, well, we'll, we'll try law school. I a couple of my best friends from high school had gone through law school, and I'd kind of been around them there last year. And so I took the LSAT and got a good score on that, and they let me into the law school there. And which <laughs> was a really strange thing that they should do. And um, I went to three years of law school, and I dropped out um, right before the last test of my final semester.
3: Wow. So
2: three years of law school, but I do not have I, – I, I'm not a lawyer. Not in any way, shape, or form. Well, I think because you're
1: doing all right, so you don't have to worry too much about that.
2: It comes in handy with contracts and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> that's true. You have a lot of knowledge.
2: Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's just enough to get in trouble.
1: Yeah. <laughs> At least you didn't go through three years of med school and try to practice medicine. You know, that would be a little more dangerous.
2: That'd be a little lot more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, cool. So that's how I end up as a writer, and it's just kind of been going on ever since. That's been my focus ever since.
1: So who are some of the writers and what are some of the stories that have uh, influenced your writing over the years? Or are there any, really?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot. Um, and and the writers themselves, probably more than anything else. I mean, I grew up reading Andre Norton and Burroughs and all of that and, and Algis Budras back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 65 years old, and that's when I was my formative years of reading were in the late 50s and early 60s there. And um, Algis Budras uh, wrote a novel called Rogue Moon, that was the very first one I remember reading and being just completely blown away by because I don't think I completely understood it at the age of 10 or something like that. (laughs) Um, And then AJ, Algis Budras, became one of my mentors later on. I I was lucky enough to meet him, become friends, and I was one of his people that he helped um, coming in. The writers, I've been very lucky over the years early on, which is why I do so much teaching and, and writing books like the Writing into the Dark book and other books like that, because um, I had such great, great mentors. I mean, I Harlan Ellison, Algis Budras, um, Jack Williamson, Damon Knight, Kate Wilhelm. They were all people that stepped in and helped, you know, and, and, and said, Dean, go this way. You know, you might want to think about this and and, you know, just offered classes and offered things that that helped me and became friends over the years. I spent many, many years of Saturday afternoons in Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm's house, um, you know, that they would do one Saturday a month and I was one of the invited writers to be able to get to do that. You know, just things like that, you know, spending time at Harlan's place over the years and listening to, you know, and having discussions about writing and editing and all of that. Um, it, it just was unbelievable. I mean, I I would wake up, I I had a bookstore in Moscow, Idaho for a while, and AJ would come, Algis Budras would come by and, you know, and and would stay at the bookstore for a couple days on his way through, and, you know, it it was great. We'd talk about writing all the time. He would always, he'd read my stuff and, you know, (laughs) tell me pretty bluntly what I'd done wrong, (laughs) so... I can't pay those folks back, of course. Some of them are dead now and, and others, are, they, they don't need anything paid back. So I try to pay forward, which is what we do in science fiction is we pay forward, pay to yeah. the next generation.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now you've also written a number of media tie-in books and, and uh, mm-hmm. settings like Star Trek, Men in Black, Spider-Man, Smallville, X-Men, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of them. Um, yep. So how did you get involved with writing for media tie-in books like that?
2: Well, I was, I've always been a fan. I mean, and I owned a star, and I owned a comic book uh, store with my bookstore. Um, oh, cool! And so, you know, I've always been a, a comic fan and a, and a uh, media fan. I mean, I'd, I'd go home on the third season of Star Trek: The Original. I was a senior in high school, and uh, I would go home on Friday night to watch the <laughs> watch Star Trek instead of doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much of a nerd I was! And um, and so, you know, it just it was it was one of those things where it was always a love, always a love. I'd sold some novels, basically the way into that is you get a career, you know, Mm -hmm. yourself. And I had sold some novels and some, a lot of short stories. And I was editing for a uh, magazine called Pope House, which Chris and I started and owned. And, um, and I had sold, uh, bought some stories from a uh, young writer by the name of John Ordover. Great stories, very funny. And one day he called Chris to talk about something she was editing the magazine of fantasy and science fiction at the time and he called chris to talk about some project that they were talking about doing and then he just said oh and by the way they just hired me to be the new star trek editor to try to upgrade the star trek line at pocketbooks and because before that it was only fans that were writing the star trek novels for pocketbooks and the the quality was all over the map Uh as you and he wanted to bring in only professional writers to do that, and so he said, well, "Would you guys be interested in writing a Star Trek book?" Well, we had just watched on over satellite the uh, the feed for the very first Deep Space Nine mm. episode, and we were, of course, fans of Next Generation, and and uh, we said, "Sure." That was the start of it, and I I ended up writing I don't know thirty five or forty, and I edited for Star Trek for a while for Strange New Worlds. I was. For 10 straight years, I was the editor of Strange New Worlds. That was uh, just great fun. I mean, I just just loved it. And I got tired of it after a while, of course, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: I just loved it. I, I probably wrote 30-some Star Trek books, including wow. some ghosted for other writers. In every series, we wrote the very first Enterprise. We wrote the very first Voyager novel, um, original novels. We, we were way out front trying to write novels from scripts and pictures you know trying to say well that's the script of the first episode and here's some pictures of the cast now go ahead and write a novel that the fans will love after the series starts <laughs>
3: oh
2: that was a challenge oh, we got a couple wow. things wrong like we had tuvok be <laughs> v- spock that that wasn't right but um you know <laughs> things like that uh. we just had a blast and then i got into men in black by pure luck because i love that movie and We walked out of the very first Men in Black movie, which used to be a comic book. I don't know if you knew that. Men in Black came from a comic book. And and Chris turned to me and she said, you could have written that. And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up, through a series of bizarre circumstances, meeting the editor who had just got the Men in Black novels um, to do two original novels between the movies, first movie and second movie. And basically the the assignment was to write a novel that would feel like a movie Mm -hmm. to the readers. And so I got to write two original Men in Black novels. That was just tremendous fun. Um, and I did quite a bit of that. I probably, out of the hundred and some novels I sold to New York, probably 55 or 60 of them are media in one form or another.
1: Wow. That's fun because, you know, yeah. you, get to, you get to, you're already a fan of something and then you basically get to just play in that world.
2: <laughs> yeah, we made, we made a couple mistakes early on. Um, And, you know, by and large, I ended up writing a lot of them. Chris's name is on a lot of them, but you never could tell who wrote what in any book. What occurred was we took a project that neither one of us were fans of the of what the project was. And um, it was just work. I mean, it was awful. Mm. Uh, It wasn't fun. And so from that point on, we decided we'd only write for things that we were fans of. Mm. And that's a major rule. Also, it is much more difficult to write um, by trying to imitate voices and everything else. I'd rather write my own stuff any day. It's much easier when I'm making <laughs> it up versus trying to make sure that the fans are going to, you know, hear Kirk and Spock and McCoy and hear them correctly. Um, that's that's some that's some that's some upper level writing. And, yeah, and so forced us into it very quickly.
1: Well, uh, yeah, because if it's characters you created, who can tell you that, oh, that's not how they talk. Yes, it is. I made them. <laughs>
3: exactly.
2: Exactly. And so and especially with hardcore things like Star, Star Trek oh, and Star Wars. Yeah. Chris wrote some Star Wars and, um, you know, things like that. We just but it was great fun over over that decade and a half that we did that. You know, it was from 93, I think, and then up until 2005. Um, but I had already stopped writing the books about 2002 but I was still editing for Trek up until about 2005. So it was a fun decade.
3: <laughs> Sounds like it.
0: Was there a specific one you liked better writing in? You know, a specific crew, like Next Generation or Deep space 9? Um, no, I pretty much,
2: I really was a fan of all of them. Frightening, including Enterprise, um, the last series. I, I really was a fan of all of them. I think the book I had the most trouble with was, was a Quantum Leap novel that we wrote because we were major fans of Quantum Leap. Yeah. But then I started into that and I, I had trouble writing it. Chris ended up writing most of that book simply for the fact that the Quantum Leaps are are almost like a cozy or a romance format. There's not a lot of plot. There's just the plot is, oh, the setup. And then there's not a lot of plot. It's all character, 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 character. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've learned how to write those kind of cozy and, and romance formats where there's Plot, but at that point in time when we got that assignment, I was very plot driven, and boy, that drove that that book drove me crazy. But I love series. Um, no, I don't think that, I don't think there's anything. No one particular. Men in Black, I'd say, would be my two favorite. Those were just way too much fun. <laughs> really, my kind of humor and my kind of mind.
0: Was there anything you wanted to do in one of those media tie-in books that that you weren't allowed to?
2: No. I'm sure there was over the years. Nothing springs to mind because the restrictions were such. But but uh, the folks at Paramount Pictures were very once I got established after the first two or three novels. Um, and for a while, there was only five of us writing Star Trek that, in, the, in the novel form. Wow. Me, Peter, David, um, L.A. Graff, um, you know, uh, Jen, Michael Jen Friedman, um, Diane. Um, There was only like four or five of us, six of us in the entire stable that were writing these. So we were filling the list. And after a while, the fine folks at Paramount pretty well knew that we were going to follow the rules, that we were going to reset the universe, that we were going to not do something, have a character do something they wouldn't do because they realized that the five of us were all major fans Mm -hmm. and we weren't going to mess up the universe. So (laughs) it was quite a bit of leeway as long as we stayed within the, the confines of, writing a Star Trek book for Star Trek. In fact, they gave us a lot of leeway. I wrote a, um, a mystery novel set in Star Trek with the uh, uh, Picard went onto the holodeck as, and played a mystery character called Dixon Hill. Mm-hmm. And I wrote an entire Dixon Hill novel where Picard never showed up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, he was only in the captain's reports. So it was from Dixon Hill perspective, Picard playing Dixon Hill on a holodeck program. And I went through every subgenre of mystery, every chapter. I mean, I just, one chapter would be a a cozy. The next chapter would be a, um, you know, a castle on a hill with the <laughs> fog, you know, that, that gothic. And, you know, I just had more fun. And they let me get away with it. Wow. The fans didn't really love it that much, but but Paramount let me get away with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which one was that? What was the title? Oh, of
2: man, I don't remember the name of it now. Um, hang on here. I can, I have the covers A lot of the covers around my ceiling in my office here. (laughs)
1: That's a good place to put them.
2: Not all of them, but some of them. Huh? Hard Rain.
1: Okay.
2: Hard Hard Rain. Rain. It's a next generation novel.
1: Hmm. I'm curious about that one. Yeah, I love I love Captain Picard. He's my favorite captain.
2: Yeah, and Dixon Hill was a great you know it was a hard boiled detective. Dixon Hill played a hard boiled detective, and it was just great fun. That was a fun book to write.
0: (laughs) You also wrote an original one, Starfleet Corps of Engineers series.
2: Yeah. Yeah, um, John Ordover, Keith DeCanado and I, um, we kind of brainstormed that into being because we, the Pocket at that point in the year 2000 wanted to have only an electronic line of books. And they figured in Star Trek would be the best place to do it. This is way ahead of the mm. <laughs> the yeah. ebook revolution um, back in the uh, uh, peanut press and the pocket readers and oh, you know, all those things that came and went and failed. Well, Pocket Books decided... That they wanted to be out ahead of this and have their own line, and so they basically we brainstormed the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, and I wrote the very first short novel. I think it was a forty thousand some word novel um, called Belly of the Beast. I actually remember the name of it, um, and it it knocked Grisham off the top of the best electronic bestseller list. Woohoo! Yay! But as <laughs> as, as Ordover said to me in an email, laughing, he said. He said, yeah, that's like being the best hockey player in Ecuador. <laughs> that was just, it was nothing at the time. This was the year 2000. You know, mm-hmm. we were 10 years ahead of our time. And, uh, and it, but it was great fun. So they put them into book form too. And then Keith Keith ended up, because I was editing Strange New Worlds for Pocket. Keith DeCanado, the writer, um, ended up editing um, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. And he took that into, I mean, they knocked them down to about 15,000 word novellas per book book, but he took, I I mean, there were a hundred of those things. I only wrote the one, the very first one, but um, they edited quite a line of those things. There was a lot of them.
1: Yeah. I got to tell you in 2000, I don't think I'd ever even heard of the concept of an (laughs) ebook.
2: Yeah. In publishing, it was the, it was the big fearful thing
3: Mm -hmm. um,
2: from about 93, 94 on publishing was constantly having meetings about this big electronic revolution coming, but then it wouldn't come. (laughs) And so for the longest time, they just kept having these, oh, the sky is falling kind of meetings, and then nothing would happen.
0: It's like like Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Exactly. Just nothing would happen, and nothing would happen. And and so by the time the real e-book revolution actually did hit, they were all tired of it in New York, which is why they got such a slow start out of traditional publishing, is because they just they, they were just, the sky is falling one more time, oh no. And then when it actually did fall... They weren't ready um, wow. because it had been going on since '95. They were way out ahead of it, and then they just kind of gave up.
1: Mm-hmm. That was not a wise move.
0: No. Now you have uh, multiple original series out there. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about a few of those. One of them is a time travel Old West series called Thunder Mountain. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that?
2: Basically, that is—it's exactly what you said. It's a—it's a time travel. Um, it's it's set in the Old West, um, in a lot of it in mining towns and stuff, but it but it um, is from mathematicians and the, the main characters are mathematicians and and history writing people, people who want to research history books. That's aren't my main characters in all of these. And it's a very complex world. Um, I try to not do, you know, the standard, oh, she walked into a closet and ended up 300 years in the past. No, this is all basically real science fiction. Um, that I'm trying to it, and explain by physics of how this could actually happen, and um, so I'm trying to be very strict on the science fiction elements of it and how it would really work. What kind of time travel would really function? Then I set it in the Old West, and they have you know all kinds of interesting issues that happen. So it's dealing with that. It's dealing with relationships. It's dealing with the time. It's literally my best series, I think, far and away. Um, I am writing the seventh book in it right now called Melody Ridge, which is I had a series of short stories for the longest time about a time traveling jukebox. Um, This thing was optioned in, it's still been optioned in Hollywood actually. Uh, Basically it's a jukebox that when, if you have a memory from the song when the jukebox is playing, um, it takes you physically back inside your younger body of the memory. And I've been writing and selling stories in that series since, oh, the eighties. I probably have, 15 or 20 jukebox stories that have been in anthologies and magazines and all over the place. And a lot of them won awards. One of them was up for Nebula and and things like that. But I never had an origin story of where the jukebox came from. And so then I started writing this Thunder Mountain series. And at one point I went, there's the origin of the jukebox. And so Melody Ridge is combining these two series now (laughs) finally Mm
3: -hmm. after,
2: after 30 to 40 years, I finally figured out what the origin of the jukebox was. (laughs) So that's, that's great fun. That's, that's my favorite series of all. Um, I'm writing a big space opera series um, called Cedars, the Cedars universe. Those are going to be They're not branded. The covers on them are bad. Um, We went the wrong direction with them to start. And now we're going to rebrand them here this summer. And then my all-time favorite series only has one novel in it, but it has about 60 short stories in it, and that's Poker Boy, because I used to play at one point or another. In fact, that's how I paid my way through all those years of college as I played professional cards. For a couple of years when I quit writing, I got kind of tired of writing back in the early 2000s, got burned out from the media stuff, and I went and played professional poker for about two and a half years. And nobody notices that in writing because books are so slow coming out in that period of time that, you know, nobody noticed I was even gone.
3: <laughs> uh,
2: we never said anything that, oh, Dean quit and went and played cards. Um, I just kind of came back to writing. Yeah, and nobody, literally nobody noticed. If I didn't tell people I was actually gone doing that for a couple of years, no one would have noticed. Yeah, I didn't have a blog. You know, it was still traditional publishing. Books were so slow coming out that I still maintained a lot of books coming out. So I have this character called Poker Boy. And it's he's a superhero, and so it's an entire superhero team, and um, he's a superhero. His boss is, of course, the God of Poker, and and Laverne, who is Lady Luck herself, and you know, and it just they go around saving the world and their team.
0: So, what's his power? Does he have like probability powers, like luck? Yeah, he can he can read people. He can
2: teleport. He can be extremely patient. You know, all poker powers.
1: He knows Uh, when to hold him and when to fold him. when to walk away and when to run.
2: It has a lot of humor in it too. It's an attitude. A lot of attitude. He has he has some attitude. He usually solves problems by asking stupid questions, um, and so it's it, it, they're really fun. Um, people just love them who start reading them. And I've got fifty or sixty of them. But we're going to rebrand those this summer at WMG. The the Allison and the fine people at WMG Publishing are all rebranding all the Poker Boy stories. And I'm going to be writing more novels than that. And they're going to look like comic book covers huh,
3: cool.
2: on books, uh, only really whacked out, really fun. A <laughs> wonderful comic book writer and artist by the name of Lee Allred gave us the idea to go this way and kind of did some samples for us, and, and, oh, they're just going to be fantastic. And then they'll stand out. Right now they just look like everything else I do. Those will be rebranded, too. So over this next year I hope to get the series is kind of rebranded and going out a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. What is Cedars Universe about? Um, Hardcore space opera,
2: galaxy-spanning space opera. Um, It's basically the conceit that humans are alone in the universe. Um, And so I just kind of went, yeah, okay, we are. Um, And then that whole thing from Star Trek where why do all of the characters in Star Trek have humanoid base? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, and they explained that away in The Next Generation that there was a a race of of humanoids the galaxies, and that's why everywhere they go, there's more humans and more humanoids and, you know, funny foreheaded people.
3: <laughs>
2: and and that's all. So that's they tried to explain it in Next Generation. Um, and I took that idea and said, oh, let's play with that. So the cedars are the are the um, basically a mortal mortal race, but they're humans and they just see human populations and then take care of them. So every human population comes up exactly the same and on every Planet, and so they do this galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, and I've taken that gigantic scope (laughs) and tried to bring it down into a human form. But you know, like one of the ships, um, one of the books has a a big mothership that's out of control and it's going to destroy planets, and you know, mothership the size of a moon and that sort of stuff. It just, you know, it's just great fun, and and a lot of them, some of them are set on on Earth. Every planet, of course, is called Earth, technically our Earth where we have an EMP blast and that the the Cedars rescue as many people as they can out of the way of the blast, but it still destroys the civilization and some of the Cedars come up through that.
3: Hmm. And,
2: and so I'm, it's just great fun. I'm trying to, we will rebrand all of that. So it looks like science fiction right now. It sort of looks like romance novels because hmm. there's relationships in all of them. We went that way to start and that was a bad idea. Uh. So. Yeah. They're really fun novels, though. I got I six think, or seven that. I think,
1: yeah, and the Cedars—that sounds really interesting. I love good space opera, science fiction.
2: Yeah, this is major, major space opera, major space opera, galaxy-spanning. And I try to be as realistic in the science fiction. That's kind of the, you know, the way I was brought up with Algis Budrus and and Jack Williamson stuff. So I try to make my science fiction as true to science as I can. Mm-hmm. Just what if this goes happens, or what if this happens, and. And that's that's so the romance readers it was just too much science for them.
1: Yeah, you want very sciencey science fiction. Where,
2: way science, <laughs> way too much about the ships and how they get from here to there and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's t- I know it's genre is very important mm-hmm. in in book writing for sure. Yeah. Uh, what your audience audience expects, and with the covers too. Yeah, especially well,
2: critical on the covers, just critical.
1: People have expectations.
2: Yeah. And you don't often get it right, but that's the nice thing about this new world and not dealing with New York. If I'd have sold these to New York, they would have they would have been done. That would have been the end of it. You know? mm-hmm. But Now, in with the new indie world and with the presses like WMG Publishing, we can just say, that's not working. Let's run at this again, mm-hmm. and, uh, and
0: we can go at it again.
1: It is nice to have a little more control over your own creation, really. I
0: mean, it's... stability,
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's got to be really interesting with your... With your a few decades of doing this in industry. How the industry's <clears throat> changed. Yeah, to oh. see how it's changed so dramatically.
2: I would have been so not in writing at the moment <laughs> uh, I if I was stuck only in traditional publishing. I, I, as a person with three years of law school, there isn't a chance in the world that I would ever sign a, a modern contract that people are getting offered these days. Because I would never sell copyright for the full life of the copyright you know that's set, most young writers don't know that that's 70 years past their death and the agents then are still on the contract if they sell it to a New York publisher for life of copyright well that means that the agents heirs are going to be dealing with the writers heirs for way past, you know, maybe into grandkids level. Wow. So, you know, you just, the writers aren't thinking this through. The contracts only became this bad in the last four or five years. So, I would have been so retired. I'd have been selling short stories. I'd have been a short story writer and playing poker. (laughs) But thanks to the indie revolution, it allowed us the freedom to do what we want to do. It allowed me the freedom to write the kind of books I'm writing. Most of my books now, because I grew up reading books that were 40 and 50,000 words long. That was the standard length of novels for well over a century. I mean, sure, there were a few longer ones, but they were very rare. Um, All of books were just 40, 50,000 words. And it wasn't until New York needed to start raising the price of the books to afford all the New York rent and all the other stuff that they started forcing authors and contracts to write these longer books. Now the standard length of a book for the last 20, 30 years has been 80, 90, 100,000 words. But I grew up in the 50,000 word level. <laughs> and, and so when I got the indie publishing, I went, oh, and I just started writing naturally 50,000, 60,000, 40,000 word novels. And I'm very happy with it. Um, you know, and, and, and that's just where my mind seems to work in, in the level of, of uh, how a story it tends to wrap up around 50 or 60. And they always did that when I was writing for traditional too, but I'd have to go back in and pad things out and oh, add yeah. plot cycles and stuff to get it up to the contract length. Mm. But I'm very happy not having to do
0: that now. Mm-hmm. It seems ebooks has really helped bring back this smaller word count. Mm-hmm. Uh, well,
2: we, we sell them in paper too. We're, In fact, our, our at WMG, our second largest sales is paper through bookstores and things like that. Oh, really? Oh yeah, we're just as well in paper. Paper seems to be stabilizing. Bookstores seem to be stabilizing, which is a good thing. Being indie doesn't mean you can't sell paper. We mm-hmm. sell a lot of paper.
1: I have to say I I, I still do prefer an actual physical book. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and I Marks makes fun of me. I'm I'm not the most high tech person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so uh I like I like actual books and I even like, you know, Vinyl records, if I can get them, you know, there's just something yeah. about I think, that I, I like
2: think, better. I think the readers these days are very happy with choice, um, and that's that's the fun part about it. Is is the readers now can say, oh, I can read this book on ebook. I can oh, I can pick up the paper or I can read it on my computer screen.
3: Mm-hmm. They
2: have choice, and I think their readers have now come to accept it. They want the choice. Yeah. And so as, as writers and who, if you're doing your own indie or, or like with WMG, a small, you know, medium sized press, um, they need to make sure that they give the readers the format they want in any format and you know not restrict the formats or restrict where a reader can find a book. Um, so exclusivity is a bad thing. And so you just make sure a reader can find what they want because readers are expecting choice now. Yeah. expecting to be able to read it in paper, expecting to be able to read it in electronic, expecting to be able to read it on their computer if they want. Every reader's different. We as writers in this new world need to make sure that they have that choice.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, if our audience hasn't figured it out yet, you write <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot. I was really surprised when I found out you even have like um, a monthly anthology called Smith's Monthly.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, it's an actual magazine. It's called Smith's Monthly, and it has a full novel in it, a serialized novel, and four or five short stories, um, and sometimes other stuff. Wow. Uh, I sometimes threw some of my poems in there just for fun. Um, it's, it's written only by me. I write the entire contents. How's that for an ego? And,
3: <laughs>
2: and basically, um, I'm, on, I'm putting together issue 20 right now, and 21. I've been doing it every month for 21 months now. So and, how
1: do you manage to do that on top of everything else that you're writing? <laughs> you
2: know, right? Well, I'm basically everything I write now goes into Smith's Monthly first, unless I have a a, a, a contract with you know a, a somebody or I've offered to be in an anthology or something like that. I'm basically just filling Smith's Monthly. It's about seventy to eighty thousand words a month. You know, the novel's usually forty to fifty thousand words, and then the short stories and then the serial novel. So it's it's in that range every month. And then I do all the layout on it because I like playing with the layout on the paper.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then uh, WMG does all everything else. But we sell subscriptions to it. i got quite a few subscribers. It's great fun. And I'm having a blast doing it. And that's where all these novels have been first. And then two or three months later, we put them out. Um, WMG, I don't do anything. WMG puts them out as a standalone novel.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so... It's, it's a regular magazine. It's just wow. it's monthly. It's a monthly magazine. I, I haven't missed a month yet. Knock
1: on. <laughs> I'm knocking on wood right now. Yeah,
0: you me too. Yeah, I was curious about that if, if you broke out the novels later, um, because I'm guessing it's multiple genres that you don't limit yourself to one specific genre, right?
3: Yeah, it's across
2: the board. And the short stories are always across the board. <laughs> Um, there'll be a fantasy story with a mystery story with a whatever. Yeah, I have a series going on in there right now. I, I just finished the third book called Cold Poker Game. I used to write thrillers um, under pen names back in for New York also. That was what I did after 92 and I stopped writing media. I started writing thrillers. And um, I did those under pen names that I can't disclose because I signed a contract because they didn't at the time. And it made sense and it still probably does make sense. They didn't want um, the best-selling writer, blank, having reviewers say, well, Star Trek writer, Dean Wesley Smith, writing as, you know, they didn't want it. So I signed a do not disclose on those thrillers. And so I have a mystery series and a thriller series that I can't tell anybody about. And they're still in print. I'm not writing for them anymore. So they're eventually I'll buy them back from the publisher. But um, they're still in print and still selling, which is sort of annoying. And... Um, <laughs> And the reality is is that in Smith's Monthly, I started a mystery series. It's called Cold Poker Gang. And it's a, they're kind of a little twisted mystery series about a bunch of retired detectives playing poker. There's poker again. And um, solving cold cases. And some of these cold cases get very twisted. And it's great fun. Just, and, and those are starting to get pretty good traction in the on the mystery side of things. But I put them in Smith's Monthly first, and then we put them as a standalone novel, a couple, three months later.
0: That sounds good. Sounds like um, a good TV series. Yeah, I was
1: going to say, I (laughs) I really like that concept.
2: Yeah, it probably would. And as soon as I get another couple written, we'll probably give it a shove that way right now. We have quite a few things under option in Hollywood and in different stages of production.
0: So let's uh, talking about your writing methods and how fast you write, especially. um, Let's talk a little bit more about your book, uh, Writing in the Dark. Okay. Um, which was part of a really cool story bundle, which probably won't be available by the time this, this interview was live. It's, <laughs> it's almost, so go
1: ahead and plug away. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's, almost, it's almost about to end. But uh, a very cool bundle of 11 books or so. What's really cool is it's the first book that I've read that focused on the methods that you call writing in the dark or others might call you know writing by a seat of your pants. Basically, you know, not really plotting too much in advance and plotting as you go, I guess, or, or writing as you go. I'd just like you to talk a little bit more about that book and uh, some of the tricks you share.
2: Yeah, one of the um, aspects that, that someone pointed out to me, I, it, it hadn't occurred to me because I've always written this way now. I've done a lot of outlines because when you're a media writer, you have to do an outline first that has to get approved by the, mm-hmm. the owner, you know, like Paramount Pictures for Star Trek and stuff like that. But, but I often I never look back at the outline. I always just then just wrote the book. Um, never looking back at the outline and no one ever compared the book I wrote to the outline. That was approved. <laughs> just, it just was no one had time in New York to do that. Um, so the reality was, is that I've always written this way. My attitude about this is that I, I want to entertain myself. Um, and I, I get bored extremely easy. And so if I'm not writing as if I'm reading the book, Um, if I know how the book's going to end, why would I bother writing it? Um, that's my attitude, which is, you know, I know flies in the face of everything taught in every class on the planet, (laughs)
3: Uh,
2: but I'm pretty normal for long-term. Again, there's a group of us that I call long-term professional writers. You've been around for 20 and 30 years. You're a (laughs) long-term professional writer, especially you've survived all the lumps and the, and the crashes and everything else that go on in publishing. You know, the, the thought of outlining a book and then writing it, oh, wow, deadly dull, deadly dull. Um, I, wanna, I love reading. I, I love to be entertained.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so when I pick up a book, I read it for pleasure. You know, another author's book, I read it for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then if it's something I want to study, then I go back after maybe a second or third time and look at it, you know, and study what that author's done if they've done some really nifty things. But when I'm writing, I want to have that same experience. Exactly. So I'm just making it up as I go. I am completely making it up as I go. And um, what I do is I outline after I've written the chapter. I write down what I wrote in that chapter. That's because I have a very bad memory also. (laughs) And I want to remember what I did back in Chapter 6 and who the viewpoint character was in Chapter 6 when I'm down on Chapter 20. And so I do a little outline, a little hand outline as I go along. So when I finish a chapter... I write what happened in the chapter and who was the viewpoint and maybe what the character was wearing if I change clothes or something. And that way I'm I'm outlining as I go, but never ahead. In fact, the hardest chapters I have to write is somewhere usually three or four chapters from the end. I figure out the end. You know, you're sort of like, oh, there's the ending. Mm -hmm. And I still got three or four chapters to get there. Those those are just drudgery. Because it's like, no, the ending, why should I bother? I want to just put it down and walk away. And I'm only writing at that point so that other people can read it, and that's just not what I do. I, I write to entertain myself. I also never write critically. I never rewrite, ever, have never rewritten, except after the first seven years of my career, which I never sold a story after those first two, which I did not rewrite. I sold two stories in 1974, did not rewrite them, and then learned all the myths of publishing, like I must rewrite everything to death, must polish. And, of course, never sold the story. And the minute I stopped doing that in 1982 um, and followed Heinlein's rules, 100%, all five of Heinlein's rules, I, I just climbed on board and said, I'm not doing anything but following Heinlein's rules, started selling again. Okay. And uh, and I have never rewritten anything, unless to editorial demand. And then editors never read the rewritten thing. So usually I would just go in and say, oh, well, I agree with the editor there. No, I don't agree there. I wouldn't touch that. And so I would only do what I thought was right, send it back, and they would always be fine with it. And so basically I don't rewrite, and I just write into the dark. But the key element of writing into the dark is what's called cycling.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, cycling is, is when you, you have to, if, if, to understand this concept, you have to basically maybe go watch the movie Slaughterhouse-Five, which was, the book was written by Kurt Vonnegut. But it's easier to see it in the movie. It's an interesting movie, but the main character, Billy Pilgrim, Pilgrim in that movie, is unstuck in time in his own life. He jumps around to his birth, to his death, to events that happen in the middle, um, you know, and so he's always jumping around in his life. He's unstuck in time. Well, novelists, we don't have to write the book the way a reader reads the book. There's no rule anywhere that says we must start on word one and write to the end. We don't have to do that. And so what I do is I cycle. I'll write four or five pages into the book, kind of bogged down, you know, kind of go, oh, I wonder where this is going, you know, and I will jump out of the timeline of the book and I will go back for four or five pages, about a thousand words or so, and I'll read through the book again, touching things, maybe fixing something, maybe adding a little more detail and that'll get the book solidly in my head. And then I'll be able to power forward another four or five pages. And then I stop and do it again. So my process is I'm always out of the timeline of my book jumping back and forth. And Mm. so if if I get to some place and say, oh, that needs to be fixed, what I instantly do is go back and fix it.
3: Mm.
2: I don't wait for a second draft. I don't do any of that stuff. So when I'm done with the book, I never look at it again. It's basically
1: you're writing and rewriting at the same time rather than... Concentrating on writing it first and then going back and rewriting.
2: Yeah, because the going back and rewriting means you go back in critical voice. You never want to write a book in critical voice. You want to stay in creative voice all the time. And so by doing it at the same time like that and just cycling back, it's always first draft. I'm always just constantly touching it in creative voice. And I never allow myself to go back as a critical because, I mean, i got a pretty large critical brain because I teach so much Mm -hmm. um, and try to explain to writers so much how you do something that I never want to let that voice get near my writing. I well, just
1: I'll, yeah. And also just, you're able to keep a train of thought. And, and it's almost like stream of consciousness rather than exactly. saying, oh, that's a good idea, but I'm not at the rewriting phase yet, so I need to wait. <laughs> yeah,
2: because you'll forget it. It won't be yeah. the same. It won't feel the same, and you'll let the critical voice in. And critical voice's job is to stop you. I mean, that's that's why humans have a critical voice. We, we, our critical voice is our protect mechanism. And so uh, if a critical voice is, is going to do anything, it's going to dumb it down and it's going to ama- eventually say, "Oh, I should never mail that. That book's bad." <laughs> no, no. You just finish it and get it off to readers and then work on the next one. And it also makes it a lot more entertaining. So, you know, and I, I I don't type fast at all. I'm a very slow typist. I only type with three fingers on each hand. I never learned how to be a touch typist.
3: Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah.
2: I'm a very slow typist. And, um, but I, the, the key with writing fast that most writers don't understand is writing fast means you spend more hours in the chair, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I'll spend 45 minutes and then I'll take a break and then I'll spend 45 minutes and then I'll take a break and then I'll spend 45 or 15 minutes here and 20 minutes here, break it up, whatever. And, and, uh, I just spend more time than other people, which is why I write
3: more. Mm-hmm.
1: Huh. I, I like this. I, I, I understand how your brain works when you're talking about, you know, going through and, and, and cycling and, and not being critical because I have that problem where I'm so critical that I, I can't do anything because every, everything I do, I think is crap.
2: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I completely, I believe that about every word I've written since 1982 because the, <laughs> minute, the, the minute I stopped rewriting, and I would mail it. I was 100% convinced that everything I wrote was complete crap. <laughs> and editors would buy it, and people would love it, and you know. And I, I've sold 17 million copies of my books, and you know, and been on every bestseller list. I don't, I don't like claiming the New York Times bestseller list, but I've been on it a number of times. I, I like the USA Today list because it, it's a better list. I know the mechanics behind the list. Uh-huh. That's why I like saying I'm a USA Today bestseller. But the, the, the truth of the matter is 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 that I just, I want to entertain myself. Mm-hmm. And I, and rereading one of my own books, why would I do that? I've read the damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: you know how it ends. <laughs> yeah,
2: I know how it ends. I don't want to read it. You know, I want to write the next one. I want to be entertained by the next book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Or I'll go pick up somebody else's book and read it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing I wonder about mysteries, though, is there... Do you have to break that rule a little bit of mysteries? Well, because a lot of mystery writers, their suggestion is that you have to know the ending first and work oh. backwards. Yeah, boring. No. <laughs> no, I don't have any idea. In fact, I'll often come out, I'll be 150,
2: 200 pages into a novel, I'll come walking out of my office and Chris will be sitting reading or doing something in the kitchen and I'll come walking out and say, I have no idea how this book's going to end. None. <laughs> And it's a it's a very very comp. Basically, my joy in life is trying to write myself into a corner.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And then you know, and then and then I'll usually if I'm stuck on something, I'll say, okay, I'm going to sleep on it. And then tomorrow morning, my subconscious will know the answer to this. And ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it does. Now, I does very the- seldom put something away because I can't figure it out. Uh,
1: yeah. Does the cycling help though? With with mystery, there needs to be some you know evidence. And, or, you know, a character place at some point earlier in the story who's, who did it, you know, rather than, oh, at the end, here's this guy that we never mentioned before and he did it. So the cycling, does that pretty well take care of?
3: I've, I have learned
2: that? that if you trust your subconscious and trust, see, your subconscious has been absorbing stories since when you were sitting on your parents' lap and they were reading to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's absorbed story. The key is, is the critical voice won't let it out. If you can get the critical voice out of your way, your subconscious knows the story. There I have I cannot begin to tell you how many novels I have written into the dark that I'll be going on and going on and I'll and and, and I won't go back and take anything out, you know, I'll, I'll add to and other stuff because I know my subconscious put it in there for a reason. And I'll be going along and by god if, by the time I hit the end of the book, if that opening completely set up the ending and I had no idea that I was writing it. I had no idea that it was setting it up that way.
3: So My you subconscious
2: just trust your instincts. story, You just have to trust it. And the hardest part for writers to do is to get that critical rewrite voice out of their head and trust the back of their brain, that subconscious that's been absorbing story your entire life.
1: So how, how would you recommend a writer make the critical voice their bitch instead of the other way around? <laughs>
2: um, I'll tell you, the critical voice never goes away and it's sneaky. It comes in from all kinds of different ways. Um, I would say first off, for new writers who are getting their stuff out in need, never read a review ever, 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 ever. no no long term professional writer ever reads their own reviews. Um, those things are just killers, and even a good review, oh, a good review, then you've got to feel like you've got a, your critical voice says, "Oh, we better make this next story as good. Uh, uh, you know, see it's just death. no matter whether it's good or bad, and it's just other people's opinions, and that doesn't matter. you're writing for yourself. Um, and the second thing I would suggest you do is, is not rewrite, just plan on making the first draft, the best draft you can do and not rewrite, not touch it again, not look at it again, never look at it again, (laughs) um, write the next story. And so your focus is always, it's, it's like, it's like you're walking a marathon. You're, you're walking this long goal and you always have to be walking forward. The minute you rewrite, what you have done is you have stopped turned around and walked in the other direction. <laughs> and, and that's just, and, and boy, I'll tell you, that's not going to get to any goals real quick is <laughs> if you're constantly stopping and turning around and going back. And, uh, and that's what happens with writers is they're constantly going backwards, constantly going backwards. And so I would highly recommend that you just, just do the best job you can do. Don't ever think you're writing crap while you're writing it. Just literally focus on doing the best work you can do while you're writing it and then when you reach the end release don't ever think about it again and then do the best job you can on the next story and then as you learn it'll always be applied to the next story you can't go back and fix the story as algis budras once said to me about a young writer and and you know and and he had this awful short story we were in a workshop together aj and i were two of the pros this poor young writer was so ego and he had no hope we knew he had no hope (laughs) and uh, which is kind of sad to say but when you're so wrapped up in your own ego and he thought this work that he had turned in was, was fantastic.
3: Oh, and, yeah. it,
2: it, you know, and he just thought it was the best thing ever. And he had rewritten and polished it to death. And one of the things that happened with AJ is, is AJ got to AJ and he said, well, you know, this would make a pretty good novel. And the guy just went away happy, just went away happy. <sighs> and I asked AJ, we were walking down the hallway at this conference. I asked AJ, I said, why did you tell that writer to, Right. Take that piece of sh- garbage and turn it into a novel. And AJ said, looked at me and he said, if they have a pile of shit, tell them to make it into a larger pile of shit and they'll go away happy. <laughs> <laughs> <The> <laughs> and I'm like, OK, got it. <laughs> 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 and that's sometimes what, you, you know, it just sometimes that's just the nature of it. Yeah. If someone is rewriting and rewriting and rewriting on the same story over and over and over again, they got no hope, no long term. And, and if
1: he wasn't going to listen to anything other than something positive, you know, if he told him something different, he wouldn't have heard it. Wouldn't right. have believed it. So just, wouldn't have believed
2: it. Would have discounted it. They, we'd have been wrong. Yeah. Uh, Harlan Ellison, on a manual typewriter, single draft, would sit in bookstore windows, and someone would give him just a word or a phrase or something, and he would write a short story sitting in a bookstore window, and he would pull the finished typed manuscript off, and tape it to the window so people outside the store could read his story as he's writing it. And those things won major national awards in mystery, national book awards, you know, all kinds of stuff, science fiction, Hugo's. And he would write them one draft, never rewrite them, in a bookstore window in front of people on a manual typewriter.
1: That's performance art right there.
2: And yeah, it's <laughs> art, But it also shows that he was in complete control of, he didn't need the critical voice, and even though people were standing around reading what he was writing, he didn't care. His creative voice was in complete control.
1: That sounds a lot like uh, Ray Bradbury as well.
2: He did exactly the same thing. Yeah. Towards the, uh, the, the problem with long term, and I'm one of them, um, and at some point I'll probably stop doing it. Most professional writers, when they get in front of younger writers at a conference or something, will tell them they're three or four draft writers. They'll lie to them.
3: <laughs>
2: I, I, do, I do the same thing. I'm, I tell people, you know, I'm a three draft writer. Well, my three drafts are I run through the book first and I get it done. Then I spell check it. <laughs>
3: that's
2: a draft. It takes me about 20, 30 minutes because I don't have my spell checker on or my grammar checker on when I'm writing because that's just all critical voice. And then I spell check it to fix the spelling. And then I give it to m- my first reader who happens to be my wife. She reads it. And if I agree with some of her comments, I fix her comments. That usually takes me about an hour or if she finds a typo or something. That's my third draft. <laughs> so my second, third draft usually
0: take about two hours total.
1: That would work for my my attention span as well. I like that.
0: (laughs) So what are some upcoming fiction, nonfiction books you like to let people know about? Mm, Boy, I'm doing so many things.
2: Um, You know, I I had 28 books come out last year. Wow.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I know. Kind of insane, huh? 12 of them, of course, were Smith's Monthly. Um, I think if you want to really track and the different series and the different things I'm doing and I'm going to be redesigning my blog here in the next couple three weeks to make it mobile friendly and all kinds of stuff like that. I think just either following my blog or or get a copy of Smith's Monthly and if you can get the PDR, PDF excuse me, uh, because that also shows all the ads and the layout and everything else inside of it or get a paper copy you know, or electronic but I think that's the best way because I don't know what I'm going to write next. I have no idea. Often I'll just sit down with a title.
3: Mm -hmm. I often
2: usually start everything with just a title. I'll come up with some goofy title and go, Oh, that'll be interesting. Wonder what this one's about. And I'll write off into the dark. (laughs) And that's why I did that book because I never saw any other book that wrote, that talked about people who just want to write to entertain themselves and not outline and not do all that boring stuff that English teachers tell you to do ahead of time.
1: Well, I like that. Um, very seldom do you hear uh people talk about writing in terms of just they enjoy writing.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, I I've you might be the only one I've ever really well I mean since we've been interviewing people we've we've met some more but my whole life I've always been told no one likes writing. They like wow. having written.
3: Oh
2: no! Oh, no. And I can't. You know, that's and I,
1: how I was taught. Was I can't important.
2: imagine doing this if I didn't enjoy it. I, I, I,
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, no way, and and I, I, that's everything I've ever been taught. And yeah. that's that's the phrase that I've always been told was, "Well, you're not going to like writing. You will like having written." No. And I remember thinking, that sounds like any other crappy job that you could, you know, you might as well just get some other crappy job where you know you're going to be getting a steady paycheck every week.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you, exactly.
1: If you don't really enjoy doing it. <laughs> no.
2: no, I, that's, that's, uh, I have a, I, uh, again, pardon the slight profanity on different stuff, but my job description is I sit alone in a room, this room that I'm sitting here in, and I sit alone in a room and make shit up. <laughs>
3: and-
2: People pay me enormous amounts of money for a lot of years. I make more money than I ever want to think about making. And, um, you know, and to, because I sit here and make stuff up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if I can't entertain myself, I'm certainly not going to entertain readers. Mm-hmm. If I already know where the ending is going, chances are the readers are going to know where the ending is going. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I just I just act like a reader. I just entertain myself. And when I get done, I go, oh, that was a fun book. <laughs> and then I start another one because I want to entertain myself again.
1: Now, and, writing and, as much as you do, about how many hours a day do you generally write?
2: Maybe three. Really? Yeah, I have I have basically a full time job. Otherwise, it's not it, it it just works out in hours. I mean, I don't because I I, I teach these online classes.
1: Oh right? yeah.
2: So those those take some time, and then I um I'm up at WMG playing around. Um, we also um because I I'm nuts. Uh, we have a store here in town, also a physical store that's mm. part of WMG Publishing that has collectibles like toys and comics and all kinds of stuff like that, cars and you name it. And so I'm constantly in and around out there playing in the toys and playing <laughs> with that. I don't run the store. I have a wonderful manager and he has an assistant running the store. But of course, I have to be out there because I'm I'm a picker for that. So I'm constantly looking for new stuff. And in Warehouse... We have two warehouses up at WMG that are part of the 7,000 square foot building. WMG Publishing has a 7,000 square foot building. You know, two of the warehouses up there are completely full of comics and toys and books and you name it. And there's books on every wall up there. And we do a couple coast workshops up there in, the, in one of the big areas. But uh, most of the WMG employees are scattered all over the country. So <laughs> it's just basically a big empty building that I get to go play in <laughs> uh, and have a great time. I oh,
1: say so you just that big empty building you just described. I think is Marx's heaven. <laughs> you, oh, it's my, that's you know, what, it's my That's what he imagines when the pearly gates open. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: that's the problem. Was when 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 you love collecting stuff and you have too
0: much money.
3: <laughs>
0: more money than sense.
3: Yeah, that's what we always
1: say. Got more yeah. money than sense.
0: Yes. <laughs> you made me feel really guilty. I'm gonna go write something now. <laughs> I write three to four thousand
2: words a day. You know, that's about all. And some days I don't even get that much.
0: Consistency seems and to wait, be. If you're consistently doing it, yeah. So Yeah,
2: if you're consistent, it adds up to an enormous amount of words.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, I feel completely inadequate right now.
2: <laughs> I don't do it for a <laughs> In fact, I always feel guilty because I have a blue collar work ethic, you know, born and raised blue collar. And so I should be working eight hours a day, you know, and and getting my paycheck and all that sort of stuff. And I work two or three hours a day and just ridiculous amounts of money.
1: Yeah. Were you, were you raised in the Midwest as well?
2: No, I was in Idaho. Oh, okay.
1: Okay. Wait, I was going to say that's, that's, we were, we were blue collar, you know, Midwest and yeah, yeah, I mean. I actually have gotten to where I feel guilty if I get paid for doing something I didn't hate, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's, and that's
2: part of that blue collar. You have to train yourself out of, because if you really, really enjoy writing, you're going to think it's not work. Yeah. And if that's all you're doing, you
3: it know, like you I guilty. am,
2: you know, that's where most of <laughs> my, that's where all my money comes from. You know, it's like, Oh, I get to go play and they pay me money. That took me a lot of years to get past that blue collar work ethic of, yeah, it must be miserable before it's worth a paycheck.
1: Right, and you must be, you know, force yourself out of bed at an ungodly yeah. hour, even if you're not as productive then, and 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 if you enjoyed it, you should feel guilty. <laughs> you should feel
2: guilty. Yeah, absolutely. That that often will take. And, and to be honest with you, I've told many writers to go get counseling because that takes counseling to get past. Because that's how we were born and raised. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, that can stop your writing faster than anything. Is that that. Oh, this is fun, so it can't be worth anything.
1: Right. It has
2: no value. It
1: has no value, yeah. You're supposed
2: to be tortured. And, souls. And yeah. It's, yeah they're,
1: they're, people are like, oh, that's nice. So, what do you really, what's, what your, do you real really do? what's yeah. your real job? What's your real job? I still
2: get that all the time. I'll, I'll, <laughs> someone will say, what do you do? And, I'll, and usually I don't say, I say, oh, I work in publishing, and they're happy and they walk away. Oh. But uh, if I actually they press me and I say, oh, I'm a writer, then the first question out of their mouth is, oh, what are you working on? What book are you working on? And have I read anything you've read? Well, probably not because you're probably illiterate. But I don't say that to <laughs> them. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff you just, that never
0: goes away. After, even after 40 years,
2: I'm still getting that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one thing. I don't think we gave the URL for your website. You're yeah,
1: back. where can people find your site? Oh,
2: uh, deanwesleysmith.com. It's D-E-A-N and then Wesley is W-E-S-L-E-Y Smith. Mm-hmm. Dot com. They don't have any links to any of my books or anything up there. I got some Smith's Monthly's there. That's all going to be changing in the next month or so. It is the worst author site. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no links to any of my books um, anywhere on that site. I have, to so um, I have a Smith's, yeah, Smith's Monthly.com is where you can find at least what you know how to subscribe to Smith's Monthly. <laughs> or just grab a off, copy off of Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Kobo or, you know, one of those places. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, you're, you're so basically what you're saying is you're successful in spite of yourself, not really. Oh,
2: 100%. <laughs> I actually did did modern things like, you know, had a website that actually promoted my books. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something, you know?
1: What a novel I, idea.
2: I'm going to get there. Uh, people have been badgering me now for a couple of years to say, you know, Dean, you might want to have links to your novels on your website or at least a page. Hey, yeah, some of it. us,
1: we feel your pain. I'm, I'm not a very good, like, uh, online social networking kind of person. It, it, I don't know. I, I'm with you.
2: Yeah,
1: I, <laughs> You're not I have a the only account,
2: one. Twitter account and a Facebook page. And I, you and I visit, I, do. I visit them <laughs> once in a while Yeah. I don't think I've done a tweet and I don't remember when, but there's a whole thousands of people follow me on Twitter. I have no idea why. (laughs) I don't do anything.
3: What are they
1: following?
2: Yeah. Chris says, well just go be social. (laughs) I'm like, No, I don't want to be.
1: They're following you into the dark. Yeah. (laughs) And it's
0: just sit in my room, write
1: things.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been great speaking with you.
1: It has been. Thank you so much. We really thank you guys. Really did a enjoy this we really appreciate it
0: oh thank you and thank
2: you very much for having me
1: hi i'm supernatural thriller author jf penn and you're listening to Genretainment. well big thanks to dean for the fun interview and if any of those fiction or non-fiction books or his monthly magazine sound interesting to you we encourage you to try them out
0: we are getting closer and closer to our 100th episode we hope to make it a special episode with a few of our past guests uh, joining us again uh, until then, we have some really great upcoming episodes with editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer Sean Coyne. We'll be discussing his information packed new nonfiction book, The Story Grid What Good Editors Know. We also have a really fun field episode coming up with the hosts of the web series Super Geeked Up, Jeff, Tanya, and Nico. For a couple years now, their show's been interviewing web series creators on a weekly basis. Inspired by their game filled show, we made this episode a Genretainment The Game Show episode. (laughs) Woohoo! As we quizzed them on geeky culture. Oh, the laughs and the tears it brought.
1: (laughs) Tears of laughter or tears of sorrow? (laughs) We're not really sure. Now, before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page. Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at genretainment.com, or all of the shows at sci fi
0: So that's it for today's genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series.
1: Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions.
0: Until, Until next time! time.
1: monkey